Our passage this morning comes from the book of Job, chapter 40, verses 6 through 24. This is the first part of the last speech of the Lord God unto Job. Uh, the passage properly continues on to, into chapter 41, uh, but we will break it up. I think um, uh, that, that it's right and good to do so, uh, as, as it would, um, there's a great deal here anyway. Uh, but this is uh, a, a passage that really does bring the, uh, the, the questions that Job had. And, and his, his, well, the questions that he had about God's goodness and mercy to him and why he was suffering to a head and, and is indeed, as we shall see, an answer satisfying to him, though the particulars are not revealed to him. Before we read, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning to sit at your feet, to hear your words to us, written and revealed to us and kept infallible by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, dear Lord, that you have given us your word ready at hand. We thank you, Father, for those that you have raised up to translate your word. And we thank you, Father, for those that uh, have printed your word and made it abundant. But we thank you especially that you give us your word, that you reveal yourself in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of the confusions of this world, in the midst of our own ignorances of sin. We ask, Father, that you would indeed confirm your word in our hearts, confirm Christ in our hearts your eternal word, that we might know you truly, that we might humble ourselves before you, and that we might give you all praise and thanks for our salvation and our deliverance. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the book of Job, chapter 40, verses 6 through 24. Then answered, Job, then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellence and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold every one that is proud and abase him. Look on every one that is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them and the dust together, and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto thee that thy own right hand can save thee. Behold now behemoth which I made with thee. He eateth grass as an ox. Lo now, his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass, his bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food, where all the beasts of the field play. 
He lieth under the shady trees and the covert of the reed and fens. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinketh up a river and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. He taketh it with his eyes. He, is, he pierces the nose through with snares. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Amen. In this passage, the Lord uh, asks Job. He is, uh, has catechized Job about his knowledge, about his wisdom, about his understanding of the ways of the world in which he lives. Does he understand the way of the stars and the law by which they abide that he can control them? Does he understand how the foundations of the world were laid that he could do the same and hang the globe upon nothing? Does he understand the, uh, the freedom of the wild ass and the, the majesty that we find even in the stupidity of the ostrich? Does he understand the strength and the warlike behavior of the warhorse? Does he understand the wild ox? The wild goat, the lion, the raven, the eagle. Job has been challenged on his understanding. And now the Lord comes to him and challenges his ability to actually govern and exercise judgment. He asks, can you, Job, and can you step into the Lord's place and humble the proud? This is... Uh, the focus of what he's doing. He is, is showing Job the mysteries of his providence, that it's not just good government, it's not just creation and sustaining the beauty of the world, it's not just providing for the wild animals in the wilderness that have not man to care for them, it's not just feeding, but it's war as well. It is uh, a humbling of those that are proud. It is a discipline. And so he, he challenges him again out of the whirlwind in verse 6. Uh, he is challenging him about his judgments. And could Job do the same? Could he disannul the judgments that he might do better? Uh, would he condemn God's government of the world that he might be righteous? The The... The act of piety is to say, uh, let me be condemned and God be justified. It's, it's, David in Psalm 51, 4, uh, I, uh, against you, you only have I sinned and done this iniquity, that you may be just in your judgments. Romans 3, 4, let God be righteous and every man a sinner. Lord had asked him about his understanding. He has asked him now about his justice. Can he wield the power like the arm of the Lord? Can he thunder with his voice of judgment? In verses 7 through 9 is that challenge. And so he, he calls him. He calls him to, to do this work in verses 10 through 13, to put on the majesty of God. Deck thyself now with majesty and excellence and array thyself with glory and beauty. It is in dealing with the proud, the wicked, 
that the Lord's glory and beauty shines forth the most. But this is exactly where uh, the Lord and his government has been called to question. Can you uh, cast abroad the rage of thy wrath? And can you behold everyone that is proud in a basin? Can you merely look on everyone that is proud and bring him low? Can you tread down the wicked in their place and even put them in the dust and bind them in hell? That is the force of the words that bind their faces in secret. Could you, Job, that have been attacked and defrauded by the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, by the whirlwind and the fire and the boils upon your flesh, can you humble such proud aggressors against you and make them do justice and vindicate your right? Can you take your friends who have lorded over you to presume that you are a hypocrite and sully your good name, can you make them confess their error? What can you do to your friends to force them to see things your way? Elihu, that young one that comes to presume and teach you theology, who has called you a blasphemer, can you humble him who has presumed to teach you and has presumed to humble you? Could you make him confess his error? And indeed, if we think about it, what could Job do against his friends to bring them to see his point of view? When you are accused of hypocrisy, one of the last effective things that you can do is to prove your righteousness. This is, by the way, the, the great uh, craftiness in the, the, the modern woke movement uh, that accuses all uh, of, well, let's just face it, all white people of being systemically racist. Because as soon as you try to prove your innocence, it only confirms their suspicion of you. And there's nothing you can do that will satisfy their criteria of judgment because they are not interested in exonerating you. They are proud. This isn't about that, by the way, but it's an illustration. Can he bring forth justice out of the wicked? Can you do it, Joe? Can you do it? Can I do it? But this is the great... Uh, glory of God that he does just these things. You turn to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust, for fear of the Lord, for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of men shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon the high mountains, and upon all the high hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon the ships of Tarshish, and all the pleasant pictures, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, the haughtiness of men shall be made low. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, and the idols he shall utterly abolish. 
And he goes on to show how man shall abolish his idols out of fear of the Lord in the judgment. Nebuchadnezzar, after his time of trial being reduced to a beast, when he comes back, he acknowledges in Daniel 4.37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Proud Saul, not the king, but the agent of the Pharisees looking upon Stephen as a traitor to the nation of Israel, as a traitor to Judea, as a, an offender against the majesty of God, is brought low and humbled to say, I am the chief of sinners and becomes the servant of our Lord. Hence, Job, can Job's hand do these things? And he might say, he might be tempted to say, thankfully Job doesn't say, that Lord, if you restore to me your, my wealth and my power and my honor, I could do such as you say. If he did say such, the Lord has cut him off by pointing out and asking him by way of illustration do you, if he knew the strength of proud wickedness, because this is why he brings into the picture behemoth and leviathan. We know this because of the context. Uh, the, he's not reverting to, to what he's already spoken in ch- chapter 39 and taking creatures and, and pondering their mysteries and, 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 and their, their oddities to the human mind. That's not the point of behemoth, and it's not the point of leviathan. If you look in chapter 41, the last verse of the passage, kind of wraps up both behemoth and leviathan. Beholdeth all high things. He is the king over all the children of pride. The Lord has asked Job, can he humble the proud? And he brings forth uh, two of the great kings and the mighty exemplars of what is proud and lofty. Behemoth and leviathan illustrates God's dominion over proud rebellion. And we might say, and properly so, over the dominion, his dominion over evil and his dominion over wickedness and injustice. Because that's been the thorn in all of the lofty speeches and the wisdom of Elihu and Bildad and Zophar and, and Eliphaz. If God only punishes the wicked and if with the wicked only are miserable in this world, how is it that the wicked have ought to oppress? How is it that they are nevertheless there to do wickedness? He, he brings them forth perhaps as an embodiment of what Job himself has mentioned in chapter 38, verse 22, uh, when he's speaking of wisdom and the, the hiddenness of wisdom. He does give two of the creations that have heard something of the way of God Destruction and death say, we have heard the fame thereof with our ears. And we will look then at Behemoth and Leviathan as, as that sort of embodiment. And understand, you know, we don't really know what these, these creatures are. Uh, and I think it's a bit off the point to go searching for them. Behemoth is the Hebrew word for beast, made plural. Uh, but treated as a singular. 
Uh, Hebrew does this all the time. It does it with Elohim, the word for God. God is plural in form, but singular in the way it interacts with the rest of the sentence and that sort of thing. Uh, they have verbal agreements. It, it, you know, if you had Latin or something like that, you know what I'm not talking about. Uh, and, and so we might translate behemoth not just as one beast or another beast, but as the beast. Uh, the quintessential strong beast of the, the earth. Uh, the, the Leviathan uh, is, is a bit more uh, problematic. It's typically a sea, beast of the sea, the whale, uh, when it's used naturalistically, uh, most likely. Uh, but it can also be used for serpent uh, and can also be used uh, as it seems to be the crocodile. Uh, the behemoth can be anything that is a grazer, uh, that is, uh, eats off the land but, but dwells in the waters. Uh, historically, because there is a nice symmetry of having the largest of the sea creatures, the whale, and the largest of the land creatures, the elephant, uh, there was a nice symmetry there, and that was the old interpretation. Uh, but it wasn't universal. Uh, the hippopotamus is often put there, or the auruk, the great giant ox. Uh, today, it's not uncommon to see that, that point out that, that many point to the dinosaur, uh, Brontosaurus or some saurian like that. Uh, but all of these really miss the point. Uh, because it is not as a naturalistic creature that behemoth is brought forth, but as a, an embodiment of destruction and power, of, of even by a play on words perhaps, the mop part of behemoth, uh, of death, of the beast of death. And there is much in the description that harkens back to the underworld and the shadow. Uh, he is the strong, unhurried beast we have in verses 15 through 18. Behold now, behemoth, which I made with thee. He not just eats grass as an ox, but he devours grass like an ox. And now his strength and his, his loins, his force, force in the navel of his belly... He moves his tail like a cedar, and tail here might be tail, but it might not be tail, uh, particularly when you combine it with the, the other part of the verse. Uh, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together, uh, the loin, the groin, the, the, the force of power. His bones are like brass and iron, and we told that he is the chief and the largest of the ways of the Lord. Uh, he is powerful. The mountains pay him tribute. The mountains bring forth food for him uh, because he is a great eater. The beast of the field or the beast of the steps, and this, this is a word that's actually translated out of the ESV uh, for whatever reason, but um, it does kind of harken back to the picture of the underworld in Canaan. Uh, the beast of the field, they play about him, they revel about him, uh, just as the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, made for themselves a golden calf and reveled about him as he was king amongst the beasts. And this is the picture we have here, that he is not troubled by any creature. Uh, they leave him alone, they rejoice about him. So it kind of has that natural picture, but also there's a spiritual picture there. It's a double picture. He lies in wait upon the shadowy waters. And this is the, the words that are emphasized here are shadows and the deep 
uh, always has the connotation of danger and death in Scripture. This is a creature not to be messed with. Verse 23, he plunders the rivers, is the literal uh, translation. He drinketh up a river and hasteth not. He does not fear. He plunders the waters. He trusts that he could draw up Jordan into his mouth. He looks upon Jordan, the great river of Canaan, and it is no match for him. He could drink it up in his consumption of all things. And so we have him put forth, behold, behemoth. I have put him here before you. He is with you. I made him with you. He is but a creature. And he is the chief of my ways. If you understand behemoth, you can have insight into what I am doing. If you understand behemoth, you can view properly the majesty of God's sovereignty over the world. And what does he say about it? He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him, that is the creator of behemoth, only he can approach him with the sword. And he must approach him with the sword. That, that he made him with such majesty that God himself wrestles with him. And defeats him, certainly. But it is not the same. Verse 24 it can be translated, it's, it's a bit, the King James translates it as if it's describing something that Behemoth does. He takes it with his eyes, that is, the river, and his nose pierces through the snares that are laid against him. Uh, your translation, which I think is better, is who can take him with a better look, uh, or something to that effect? Who can pierce his nose through with snares? But it doesn't have to be read as a question. And it can be read as a statement that he that is the Lord God is the one that can take him with his eyes and pierce his nose with his snares as if he alone does this. And this is a nice parallel. Uh, the word, the verse 24 is parallel with 19. Uh, and, and so uh, the, he wrapped up two descriptive paragraphs with a statement of God's sovereignty and dominion over the creature. And what power in creation is so sovereign as destruction and decay is devouring and plundering and death. All these things that are embodied in behemoth, not perhaps the malice, we get that with Leviathan. But as death entered in by Satan, so death has a dominion. And it is strong and mighty in creation. But who but the Lord can take him and take him with but a look. He takes it with his eyes. And this, this, uh, this harkens back to jo- the challenge to Job in verse 12. Can you look on one that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place? This is what the Lord does with behemoth. He casts his eyes upon him. And though it is a sword of his word that he does it, he brings him low. So what have we learned in seeing in this challenge to Job? What have we learned? What, what has Job learned of his trials? What have we learned of Job's trials? And what have we learned of our own and our own suffering in the midst of the world? Well, first, let's go back to 19 and 24 and look at the Lord's humbling of the proud behemoth. 
How does the Lord destroy proud behemoth? This is not in the text. This is something that we know because we have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that we know because we have a fuller revelation from him. But how is it that behemoth death and destruction is curtailed? It's by Jesus Christ. And how did Christ go up with the sword against behemoth? Did he go up in pride? Did he go up in, in the awful majesty and glory of Godhead? Or did he rather take upon himself our nature and humble himself to death, even the death of the cross? We know the answer. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, the writer writes, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise partake, took of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And in Philippians chapter 2, we see that, I mean, it's humility there. He takes upon our flesh. He doesn't do it in his Godhead, but in the human nature. In Philippians 2 verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he's, he's arguing for them to be humble. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be even considered equal with God, but made himself nevertheless of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, which is cursed. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we just for a second think, Eliphaz and his two friends, Elihu, the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans that fought against Job, were not to be humbled through a, a greater exercise of pride. They were not to be out com, uh, outdone in their assertions and their prejudices. That would not have solved or vindicated Job. The Lord is going to bring Eliphaz and his three friends into humility through the humility of Job. Jesus looses death's hold through humbling himself. The Lord lowers the proud, the proud Leviathan, the proud behemoth, the proud and lofty sinner through humility, through lowliness. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God overthrows the strength of men, says Paul, who was proud and was humbled by his Savior. And he who holds this power over death and destruction, this is the one who holds the power to save. This is why the Lord, as he's challenged Job to, to humble the proud, he finishes it up in verse 14. Then will I also confess unto thee that thy own right hand can save thee. 
If you can work the majesty of God in humbling the proud sinner, if you could defeat Satan, then you could save yourself and you would not need me. But we need him and we need to trust him. And so Job learns his role in his suffering. Humble patience. Uh, Behemoth and Leviathan are not brought forward to illustrate Job. Elihu, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they would hear the words of God if, if they were listening with their prejudices. They would hear the behemoth brought forth, the behemoth brought forth, the Leviathan brought forth and said, See, Job, you are such that you are like the great beast that needs to be humbled. You are like Leviathan that needs to be wrangled, like the serpent in the garden. That's not why the Lord is bringing forth these things. The Lord is bringing forth these things to show how he governs and what he's doing in his governing so that Job can see that his sufferings serve a greater purpose. Job has been grasping about for why he's suffering. And in chapter 17, he, he first starts to understand that while he's not under judgment, that these sufferings might be helpful to others that suffer, but that still doesn't get to the heart of the matter. He begins in chapter 19 to see that his sufferings are opening up to him a hope in a future world, not just an afterlife, but a world of resurrection and eternity and justification of vindication. I will see my Redeemer with my flesh, even after the worms have eaten my flesh. Later, he sees the judgment that will come upon all workers of iniquity, even those that die in prosperity, that there is an eternal justice of God. But these things don't really answer the why, Lord, except that his sufferings have opened up understanding, which in itself is part of the why. But now he's seeing that pride and iniquity are being overthrown. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know exactly how. We see it, do we not? We see it because we've seen the Leviathan, the great adversary, the accuser of God's people, come into the court of God and accuse Job of a mercenary love, that he only loves God because of his prosperity, and that if he took that away from him, if you made Job suffer, he would deny you. And so Job is humbled. But in Job's humbling, he humbles the accusation of the accuser. And Job's perseverance and patience, he is the sword of the Lord against the devil and against, the, uh, against Satan. And it teaches us that you and I are in a similar battle. This is why our Savior who died for us, that we might not have anything more to bear of our sin before the Lord, nevertheless calls us to deny ourselves and carry a cross and follow Him. It's why He told His disciples, John and James, who wanted to sit at His right hand and His left hand, that He had to be baptized with the baptism that He was baptized with, that He had to drink the cup of woe that He would drink, 
that we share in the sufferings of our Lord, that we might share in His glory, not as instruments of that glory, but instruments of His glory. That is part of the destruction of Satan. Paul in Romans 16 takes the the victory of Christ over the devil and says it's your victory and my victory. The seed of the woman is to crush Satan under his heel. In Romans, and typically that's applied to Christ and is ultimately applied to Christ. But Paul tells us that when we are suffering for righteousness sake, when we persevere in the way of godliness, when we persevere in faith, we are crushing Satan under our heel. And because of the victory of Christ, when that roaring lion seeks to devour and destroy us and make us to suffer, we, through perseverance, can resist him. We, through perseverance, humble the proud enemy of God in our own humility. The secret of behemoth, the secret of Leviathan too, is that this is God's humbling of destruction and wickedness. And that we play a part in it, not through pride and vainglory, but through overturning the expectations of the proud, vainglorious enemy. And just as when he has thinks he has the victory, just when the sun is darkened over the sun of righteousness, is when his world falls to pieces and Christ is raised again. And we appear before the throne in the glory of a righteousness that is not ours, immune to the accusations and accusers, accusations of the accuser in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we ask that you would give us that patience, the patience of Job. We ask that you would give us the understanding to know that in this world, where we see great misery, where we see wickedness prosper for a time, that we would remember that these things are in your hand, that you work all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And that you give us a part to play in the destruction of our enemy. We ask that you would give us grace to persevere with, with faith, with patience, and with love to you and our brethren. That Christ, our head, might be glorified above all earthly powers, above evil principalities, above heaven even itself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.